Welcome back to part two and the conclusion of our two-part episode covering Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, otherwise known as the Canon Barbie Killers. In case you aren't listening to this episode right after part one and maybe forgot where we left off, let me bring you up to speed real quick before we begin. Paul and Carla have already raped and murdered three young girls from the Scarborough area in Ontario, Canada. Carla's 15-year-old sister Tammy, Leslie McAfee, who was a 14-year-old girl that Paul picked up after offering her a ride under false pretenses, and 15-year-old Kristen French, who they both straight-up kidnapped off the street on her way home from school. All three were drugged and sexually violated repeatedly in front of a camera by both Paul and Carla until they either died from an overdose or were strangled to death. Unbeknownst to the couple, they were both under a certain level of suspicion by the authorities for the death of Tammy and Kristen, as well as Paul's possible involvement in the Scarborough rapist case. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's settle in and finish the conclusion to this dark and twisted case once and for all here at the Human Delicatessen. You may recall, back in part one, that Paul had been interrogated by the local authorities concerning his possible involvement in the Scarborough rape cases, and that during that interrogation he was submitted to his DNA swab. Well, in December of 1992, the Center of Forensic Sciences finally got to testing Paul's sample. And around that same time, he and Carla had gotten into an incredibly violent domestic dispute and resulted in him beating her all over her body and face with a flashlight. Carla would end up treating her wounds over at the St. Catherine's General Hospital, which incidentally was the same hospital that Tammy had died in after he and Carla had drugged and raped her two years prior. Paul would be arrested and later released for the dispute, but the two had separated for obvious reasons. It wasn't long after that, that the test for Paul came back as a match to those collected from the known or suspected Scarborough rapist victims and Paul was placed under 24-hour surveillance immediately. Carla would be interviewed by the authorities on February 13th of 1993 and when they pressed her about the Scarborough rape cases she tried to change the subject by focusing on her abuse. Later, I'm sure under mounting pressure from the interrogation, she would admit to her family that Paul was in fact the Scarborough rapist, and that both of them had raped and killed Leslie Mahaffey, Kristen French, and her sister Tammy. Carla's lawyers had tried to get immunity for her in exchange for her testimony against Paul, but due to the nature of the videotapes that would later be uncovered, and her apparent willing involvement in those tapes, full immunity would officially be off the table, and Tammy's body would later be exhumed for a closer examination. Paul was arrested four days later on the 17th, and a search was conducted on the house that he and Carla had shared. The authorities involved in the search had to limit how thorough they could be during the search, since there wasn't enough evidence of his involvement at the time to warrant tearing down any walls or destroying the property in search for these supposed VHS tapes, and that any tapes found had to be viewed in the house then and there before they were collected. The only tape that they were able to find at the time was a short clip of Paul performing oral sex on Jane Doe. In actuality, Paul had already given the remaining tapes to his lawyer, who had withheld, withheld them for 17 months, after a plea bargain for Carla had already been established. 
Carla was offered a plea deal of 12 years, which she accepted, and she would begin to create the narrative that she was forced to perform in the videos of the rapes, including the rape and murder of her own sister, and that she was led to believe that overall, Paul had likely committed over 30 rapes, a few of which had ended in murder. In fact, one of the incidents of the Scarborough rapist case, the one where he was interrupted by the victim's mother when she walked in the bedroom, had resulted in an innocent man being incarcerated, who would eventually be freed and exonerated after Paul's DNA provided the link to his involvement. Paul was tried for the murders of Kristen French and Leslie Mahaffey, and included testimonies from his wife Carla, as well as the evidence given by the videotape instances of rape and assault. He'd be found guilty for two first-degree murder charges, as well as a litany of other charges related to the Scarborough rapist. He was sentenced to life for at least 25 years without parole and was designated as a dangerous repeat offender, which means he would likely never breathe free air in his life. Kind of like Catherine Knight back in Australia, if you remember that psycho. Carla would be sentenced to 12 years, which didn't exactly go over very well with the public, especially after Paul's attorney was eventually forced to release the tapes and it became pretty known that nobody had forced Carla to do anything that she didn't want to do. The truth looked quite like the opposite, that she looked like she was doing exactly as she wanted and quite enjoying herself in the process. And in case you were wondering about the lawyer who hid those tapes, he would eventually be charged with obstruction of justice and disbarred, since he had willingly withheld crucial evidence at the beginning of the trial. Paul would be sent to live out the remainder of his life in a segregated part of the prison reserved for sex offenders, but would regularly find himself targeted and beat up by other inmates over the years, even at one point being rushed by five inmates at once who broke into the seg unit and attempted to kill him. And honestly, I can't say that I disapprove of that kind of behavior. He's also been denied parole ever since his first uh, became eligible for it in 2015. Carla would be charged with manslaughter for the Mahaffey and French murders, as well as for her sister Tammy, but would only serve the 12 years of her uh, plea deal despite the overwhelming evidence against her. After her release in 2005, she attempted to change her name, which was denied at first, and tried to live in relative obscurity after her release. She was required by the courts that as a condition of her release, she had to always keep the police updated as to where she was living and who she was living with. She also had to notify them of her name change if she ever applied for one, and if she planned on being away from the home for more than 48 hours. She was also banned from contacting her ex-husband Paul, and from being around anyone 16 years or younger, and she had to submit to a DNA sample for the crime database. Eventually, after a few appeal attempts, Restrictions would be lifted and Carla would try to live in Montreal, Quebec, and even for a time she lived in the Caribbean. She would remarry and have three children of her own, but she would be dogged everywhere she went because of the atrocities that she committed with her first husband. Currently, Carla lives alone back in the small secluded town in Quebec without her husband or any of her children, and it would be a small blessing to know if she was absolutely miserable. I mean, it's not like the ninth circle of hell is going to be any better. In a truly crazy coincidence that I couldn't even make up if I tried, in 2012, another Canadian from Scarborough 
Luca Magnata, would d murder, dismember, and cannibalize his roommate, Jun Lin, at a, a, who was a university student in Montreal. Luca would record the entire ordeal from start to finish and post the video online, and would send the victim's hands and feet to local elementary schools as well as to a few political party member offices. Luca would use someone else's name and mailing address for the repackages, someone who was a total stranger to him. Whose name do you ask? Logan Valentini, who, before she legally changed her last name, was known as Logan Homolka, Carla and Tammy's oldest surviving sister. I can't even fathom what her mental state must have been after surviving the reality of one of her sisters murdering their youngest sibling, and then years later after picking up the pieces of her shattered life to be questioned by the police about the involvement of a wholly unrelated and grisly murder that also included the killer recording his act on camera. Luckily for Logan, she seems to be doing okay nowadays, all things considered. She spends her days now with her husband and three children and seems to be living quite happily. Full disclosure, I'm kind of relieved that this episode's over and done with. There were times when I was researching this episode and even when I was sitting here telling you this story, that I could feel anger and rage building in my chest and I could even feel my heart beat a little faster when I think about how Paul and Carla are still alive today and how Carla had betrayed her sister's trust in the worst way imaginable just to appease Paul's twisted sexual desires. And I felt how righteous, and this came across my mind just once, just for a fraction, but I felt how righteous it would feel if I could just if find those two standing on the edge of a cliff or, or the top of a tall building and just give them a little push right off the edge. It's actually kind of normal to feel that kind of anger from time to time at least in some degree, as long as we're able to separate fantasy from reality and acknowledge that those kind of thoughts are only present to kind of give us a kind of mental catharsis and so we can remind ourselves of where our moral compass lies. I mean, I feel that way a lot when I hear about animal abuse as well. Uh, we feel it a little bit when someone cuts us off in traffic or when someone talks to us particularly rudely or ugly or you hear about a friend who was beaten up by their partner or, or worse. You know, we all kind of have these mental catharsis, these kind of revenge fantasies. Some, obviously, more than others. I'll admit, I'm part of that category. But thinking of catharsis and release, that's perhaps why I get so upset and angered by crimes that are driven by sex. It's crazy and, and sometimes a little bit funny how sexual desires can drive us to such extreme levels of horniness that we feel like we're going to explode. And once you achieve that release, a.k.a. orgasm, the sexual desires evaporate almost immediately. At least the drive does for the moment. If you're a guy and you're about to go on a date with someone, but you don't want to come off as too desperate, your friends probably half-jokingly told you that just to go to the bathroom and have a little one-on-one -on -one time with yourself before the date 
to get that sexual pressure out of your system and you can be more like yourself. That's why I have so much anger and hatred for people who feel compelled to act on their sexual desires when it crosses a, a non-consensual line. Even if what you're into is something considered odd or taboo, if it's something that you really can't act on with another person, all you gotta do is take some private time and take care of yourself, and that urge to actually do that thing is, is gone within a few minutes, depending on your efficiency, of course. Or, if you're lucky or you're fortunate, you'll find some consensual partner that will help you live out that, that fantasy in a controlled environment, maybe with a safe word, you know, such as uh, bondage, S&M, and even if you are someone who has a rape fantasy, male or female, they exist. No judgment. But actual rape affects the victim for the rest of their life. Just because you decided that you had to indulge in your sexual fantasy for two to five minutes, you might have ruined that person's entire chances of having a normal life, a normal romance, or even a peaceful night's sleep ever again. Especially if you're targeting anyone who's not even an adult yet. You may have set that person on a course of self-destruction all because you couldn't contain yourself and you had to take your dark fantasies out of your mind and inflict them on an innocent person out in the real world. And you know what? A lot of people have fantasies that border on the odd and the taboo. And some of you guys, not you guys, sorry, but some people have fantasies that would border on criminal if they were acted upon. Sometimes it, it can't be helped. The brain is a strange thing. And in some cases, our brains label something as sexually exciting, even though by normal standards, it really shouldn't be. You hear about that in, in lighter situations where people are sexually attracted to um, their car or certain fruits or vegetables or, or trees. Um, but maybe one day there'll be a method to help individuals realign what they find sexually triggers them. Or maybe even though it's highly controversial, there can be a way to allow them to simulate those urges without causing harm to other living people. It's touchy, and it's not something that's easily addressed or tested, but if it keeps rapists and pedophiles from stalking young children or girls on the way home from school, it might be worth considering. I mean, there is statistical data to support that when pornography became uh, publicly available and easily accessible that there was a significant decrease in rapes that committed that were committed so there may be some legitimacy to that but as far as i'm concerned about paul and carla well they can both rot in hell i want to thank you guys for sticking through my side through this awful gauntlet of despicable behavior i hope it didn't put you in a foul mood but I do hope that in some way, this affected you in a positive manner. Raise your children by your good example and teach them to respect themselves and to respect others. Instill in them the idea of treating people of every race, gender, religion, and sexuality the way that you want to be treated or that they want to be treated in return. And for crying out loud, I can't stress this enough. 
when it when the time comes, educate your children on the topic of sex in a normal and healthy way. Otherwise, they may develop their own ideas from friends or from online, which, let's be honest, you might not be able to always censor or control. There is a lot of disturbing porn sites out there, and the last thing you want is for them to interpret a graphic simulated rape video or something similar as normal sexual activity. I know you guys know how to contact me if you have any comments or suggestions, and I always encourage you to do so. I haven't exactly worked out next Sunday's episode, but I promise it will be a mental palate cleanser after this one. As always, I want you guys to stay safe and be excellent to each other. I'll see you guys all again next week right here at the Human Delicatessen.